0: Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the Synergen Leadership Podcast. My name is Julian Carl, CEO and co-founder of Synergen Group, and very happy to once again bring you another episode where I speak with John Bainey, who is the CEO of True Pillars. I think you'll find this interview interesting for a couple of reasons. The first is that John shares his leadership journey as he's gone through a range of different roles in the banking sector. And I think one of the key messages for me also was where he speaks about resourcing and what it's like to be a leader in a very large organization where you have a lot of resources and what it's like to be a leader in a smaller organization where you need to be more resourceful as opposed to relying on resources. So once again, we'd love to hear what you think. Happy listening. Welcome to the Synergen Leadership Podcast with Julian Carl. Julian speaks with leaders from around Australia to bring you their leadership story and share their insights about being a leader. To further help you build your leadership capability, Julian shares his own insights about leadership and the tools and techniques he uses as a leader. Welcome, John, to the Synergen Leadership Podcast. Really appreciate you taking the time to be a part of it so that the listeners can have a bit of a sense about who you are and uh, where you work. Can you
1: share just a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, thanks. Really appreciate the, um, the invite to be involved as well. So, I'm the co-founder and CEO of a business called True Pillars. We're a two-sided uh, marketplace uh, that operates uh, online. One side of our business involves lending money to small and medium-sized businesses. Unlike a bank, we don't require those businesses to put up property security. So we're trying to fill a gap where people may have already mortgaged their house or have put all their money into a business, don't have a house to put up. Uh, On the other side, every time we approve a loan to a business, we offer it to a pool of investors uh, that is uh, closing in on about a 1,000 different um, investors now who pull together and fund each loan we approve. Um, so we're known, um, our industry sector is known as a fintech. It's a bit of a new term that combines uh, a traditional financial business with technology that allows us to deliver this whole shooting match online. Uh, we're up to 12 employees in Tobin now. We started open the doors just over two years ago. And um, for me personally, out of the 12, I have five that report directly to me.
0: And so is there an interesting fact about True Pillars that uh, you can share with the listeners?
1: (laughs) Yes, there is. Uh, So the interesting fact is that even though we're only a a small uh, two-year-old Australian business, we actually have shareholders in six different countries. And uh, that's because I spent a fair chunk of my career overseas. And like all startups, when you're very first raising money, a lot of it is from friends and family. And it just happened that the, the friends I've met along the journey are in far-flung places. So we've got shareholders in, in places like Norway and Greece and, and even the UAE. So wow. uh, that's a, an unusual thing, I think, for a small Aussie business. Yeah, like absolutely. There.
0: So I want to take you back, all the way back to your very first leadership role. Are you able to share with the listeners a little bit more about what that was?
1: Yep, so um, I was born in Melbourne, but I moved to London at a a pretty young age, in my mid-20s. And I was hired by uh, Royal Bank of Scotland, which was uh, one of the the bigger banks in in the UK. And my first role going into there was uh, as uh, what they call a, a client director. And I was given a portfolio of uh, large corporate clients so my job really was to interact between uh, the senior people at the corporate and all parts of the bank that they were dealing with so yeah I had uh, at the time there's only one direct report but it was my first one so that's why I sort of think of it as my uh, my first leadership role because banking's quite interesting you spend quite a long time just reporting to someone and then there's a time your first leadership where you actually get your own team so that was that was my first one
0: okay and can you are you able to remember any of the mistakes you made with your with your team
1: yeah i think the hardest part of making that transition because uh, by that stage i've you know spent what would i say nearly five years of always working for someone else it's actually really hard to, to learn how to use a, a team member and delegation just doesn't come naturally at all. Uh, so the biggest mistake I made um, undoubtedly was really just sort of trying to do everything and almost finding myself sitting there thinking, you know, how can I make something up for this person to do? Because I'm just so not, not used to having anyone there. Um, and so I think it's, um, I actually found that harder than anything else, that transition.
0: Okay. And what about some of the successes?
1: Well, look, it's something that probably um, came naturally to me to start off with, but I became more um, conscious of. And it was just about really building rapport with clients at a, at a quite personal level. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to articulate it like, like this back then. But when you're dealing at big corporate level, Most corporate clients have relationships with multiple banks. It's not unusual for a corporate to have a relationship with 30 different banks, especially somewhere like London. And between those 30 banks, fundamentally, you are selling the same thing. There's very little difference between the the products and service you offer. And so, you know, I I really thought long and hard about, well, what's going to differentiate you from the other 29? And uh, I worked quite hard at at building that personal rapport because uh, I think it means a lot in that context. And um, a lot of those um, you know, clients as they were back then are still my friends today. And um, a couple of them I've even invested in the business and which relates back to that interesting fact. Okay. Yeah.
0: And what were your biggest learnings from your that role?
1: Um, the Toughest thing at that point in time, I was only about 30 years old. Um, and when you come from Melbourne, which, you know, it's not a small city, but suddenly you're in London, which is a, a big financial capital in the world, some of the clients I had and the people I was dealing with were um, extremely senior, quite quite powerful people. And um, it's almost sort of you're one minute you're, you're sitting in the, the corner and watching on as these meetings are, are being conducted, next minute you're expected to, to lead them and hold your own. So, it was really just sort of trying to learn how to, to hold your own, put aside the fact that you know what this CFO or CEO earns because it's all in the and report, you read about them uh, all the time in the newspaper and just sort of really learning to just put all that out of your, out of your mind, be honest, don't be afraid to show your own personality because you're there, you're, you're in that meeting as well, you're in that relationship. And, and just get on with it and then hold, hold your own in that environment um, and that was a, a huge learning at the time.
0: Okay and do you think it was in this role that you decided that this idea of leadership uh, was something you wanted to explore further?
1: Yeah I have to admit you, know, uh, you, you luckily allowed me to see this question coming and it's probably one that I thought a lot about yeah. um, you know when did I decide I want to be a leader, and um, I've decided to be really honest with my answer, and I think it was from a really young age. I don't know um, what what the right words to use, but I've always been quite stubborn about wanting to do things my own way, and as long as I can remember, actually. Um, and I don't know if that's really the definition of leadership, but um, um, I definitely always wanted responsibility. It's not um, I've I'm not the one who sort of tries to get out of taking things on even if it, it feels a bit uncomfortable and I, I actually can't remember a time when when I didn't want that um, even when I was a little kid. So okay. it's something I've always wanted, you know, whether, whether I'm good at it or not, is, uh, you know, that that uh, will be we'll tested over time but um, yeah, I'd, I'd say it was well before anything that happened in my career. Okay. Yeah. And how long were you in that role for? Yeah, that role would, uh, lasted about three years, and you know, that's pretty normal in banks. You tend to, to get an opportunity every two or three years to okay. to move, which is, is pretty nice. Okay, so you made a move, and where, where did you go to? And... Yeah, so it was a pretty big move. Uh, at that time, things were really taking off in the Middle East, and our bank wanted to push into that region. Uh, so I actually moved from London over to Dubai in okay. the United Arab Emirates, Um, initially to to sort of carry on a a beefed-up version of the role I was already doing in London. But very soon after I moved, the global financial crisis hit. And our bank um, uh, had a very big problem in the Middle East. Um, More than half the the loans that we'd done over there progressively went into default on the back of the global financial crisis. Um, And so uh, they had to set up and establish a new team there in banking terms is called a restructuring and turnaround team, so um, it, it is working with these businesses that are, are not able to pay their debts along with all the other banks and all the other creditors mm-hmm. that have lent them money to try and see if there's a way to get out of that situation and, and all of us collectively to um, you know, get something other than the business going under and everyone losing their money. So the, the move, was that I I was asked to head up that team in the Middle East and and take on um, some of these situations so quite a big change to what I thought I was going to be doing when I went out there.
0: And how did you feel when they asked you to stop what you were doing and then start this new new team?
1: Yeah look I I have to admit it was um, it was a little bit daunting because uh, some of these cases were very high, high profile publicly there was some big numbers involved but I suppose going back to what I was saying earlier, that it was an opportunity to take on responsibility. So you know, deep down, I knew it was was something I wanted to do. But I, I have to admit, it was uh, it was a little bit daunting.
0: And Did you find it easier to, to take that on, considering you'd had that little taste of leadership in a previous role?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I wouldn't have been able. I wouldn't have been ready, quite frankly. As much as I did like taking on responsibility without having had that three years in London and, and living through that. I don't think I would have been ready and you know that gave me a certain confidence. Um, you talked before about making mistakes and I'm a big believer that most things you learn starts with making the mistake first mm. and if you're lucky um, the mistakes are not so terminal to whatever it is you're doing that you're allowed, you're able to learn from them and and improve, and I felt that by the time you know that opportunity came up in Dubai, um, I was ready for it, largely because of the three years before.
0: Okay. And and how many people
1: were in that that sort of turnaround team that you led? Yeah, it ended up being um, six people in my immediate team. But the way these these restructuring situations work, the very first case we took on, for example, there were there were actually ninety six banks who'd lent this company money. It was. 14 billion US dollar restructure and so it's not really logistically feasible for all 96 to have a negotiation with the borrower so what they tend to do is nominate a a smaller committee uh, to conduct that negotiation with the borrower and their advisors and uh, try and nut out a deal that they can then take back to the whole group and hopefully win support for Um, and so they're called coordinating committees and um, for better or worse, I think because our bank had so many bad loans, we were seen as you know pretty good at this caper. <laughs> um, so we were normally not only on these committees, but we were normally leading them. So you know six on my immediate team, but then um, about twenty different cases where um, we were leading, uh, to some degree, uh, you know, a committee of lenders in these in these negotiations. So um, different types of um, leadership, not always. Um, uh, with the comfort of that sort of direct report hierarchy that a bank gives you, you know, mm. um, when you've got to go out and coordinate with all these other lenders as well. Yeah, that,
0: that seems to someone who's not from the finance world, that idea of you know someone having 96 <laughs> different banks, that's quite amazing really.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's amazing how, how it can build up actually. And they literally were from all corners of the world. I remember there was a couple that, that took us a month to even find somebody to to you know, answer our communication just to let them know that loan had, had gone wrong. So, wow. yeah, that's it's, right. it, it's uh, you know, and I guess that's why we had a financial crisis. Like to some degree, it shows you how um, how lax lending practices were, names uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> around the world. And biggest learnings from that particular role? Look at yeah, you know, that that role yeah. a a really highly pressurised one, so um, some of those cases take quite a long time to play themselves out but others are really quite intense. Uh, you can be sitting there on a Thursday or Friday afternoon with a business telling you that if you, you actually don't put more money into this business that by Monday morning the locks will be changed and 20,000 people will be out of a job. and you have to make a decision right there, even though there are committees and everything that in theory you've got to go through back at the bank. It literally isn't time. So sometimes you've really got to get out over your skis and just take a decision and go back and tell them that you've already approved it and you're asking for a retrospective approval. And there is quite a lot riding on it. That that example I gave them was a real one. And so the biggest learning without doubt is is keeping calm under that pressure i actually i'm quite a, a sort of emotional person i suppose and um it did strike me when you're getting a few situations like that the, the people making the most noise and, and shouting are actually not helping and it really forced me to improve in that and really learn how to keep calm um and probably the the other thing was that um even though these some of these situations look so dire, You, when you first come into contact with it, you think, there's just no way out of this. Um, there, there are a lot of ways to skin a cat. Okay. And uh, you know, if you just keep your cool and and keep working through things, um, sometimes you can find solutions where, where it looks completely hopeless at the start. So they, they'd be the big learnings.
0: Okay. And why
1: did you decide to lead that role? Look, it was... Um, I was in there for four years, things had quietened down, but by that point, i had been away from home for over 10 years, so uh, uh, fundamentally, I just wanted to to get back to Australia, so as fun as it was, it was time to to go home.
0: Okay, so fast forward to your current role, CEO of True Pillars, any any further detail you can give us about what that role is and, and how you go about it here?
1: Yeah, well, it's a big change. Um, I'm a, I had nearly 20 years in um, um, not only banking, but very big banks with RBS at that time had about 100,000 employees globally. And the transition from that to when I first started True Pillars, um, well, it was just me for a little while. And yeah. then it was two or three people um, trying to get the whole thing set up. It's a, a massive, massive cultural change. The support system that you have around you in an organisation like a bank is, it's like night and day compared to this. Mm. The one great example I can give is, uh, I remember um, early on with Tree Pillars, I was trying to do some slides for a presentation, I'd done them, and I'd gone to Office Works and bought this binding machine to buy my slides, and uh, got to about 11 o'clock at night, and I uh, thought, I'd buying these slides and uh, it was only then that it sort of dawned on me that um, even though i've done hundreds of presentations i've never had to ban my own slides. Uh-huh. and uh, and also i had about five days <laughs> like i mapped uh, it up several times but it was a it was just a moment that if it, it sounds like a you know a funny story but if ever you needed a reminder of how different life was to what it is um i always sort of think back on that because it was quite quite comical, you know, to to (laughs) see me basically floored by a a binding machine. And, um, you know, so True Pillars, you know, as it was then, it was 18 months of, um, you know, building a a pretty serious piece of software that can cope with hundreds of different people lending to one um, borrower. Uh, Borrowers make a single payment every month. That has to be split between all these people. Clearly not something that you can do manually on a spreadsheet so we had to build all that um, the investment vehicle that, that the money comes in uh, into the loans is uh, quite a complex legal structure very heavily um, regulated it's called a, a registered managed investment scheme so there was a huge amount of learning so it was really what I'd call a huge project to, to get to market mm. um, and then we've had to sort of make this transition from um, you know a project that built stuff to a business that's opened its doors and actually starting to, to transition and think like a business. It's actually trying to grow and build a viable future. Um, in terms of my role, you know, I'm, I suppose you know, like any CEO, you're responsible for the whole shooting match. Um, in the context of startup, there's always stuff um, you've got to do yourself. You can't sort of long for your your banking days where there was someone to do everything. Um, mm. I can see you nodding because we were just talking about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, know, you, never, you never get off the tools yeah. um, and, and and I think that's important that you, you show that you're you're not above um, rolling your sleeves up and, and doing some work. I had to sort of, um, obviously I had a lot of lending experience but I had to learn the investor side and I've had to learn a, at least a passing understanding of how our technology works because I've got a chief technology officer reports to me and you know i just kept sort of saying well i'm a finance guy i don't know anything about it then it's pretty hard to be in charge of fintech Um, so it's really just trying to to, to come to terms with all the parts of our business um, really learning to operate with limited financial and people resources and and probably that if i had to really nail down what my role is is to to help the group settle on what our priorities are and how to allocate our time and our money, and that can be, you know, quite robust that process. But it has to be done when you're um, running a small startup.
0: Why did you decide to ultimately make that big decision between you know leaving a business that's got
1: 100,000 employees into taking that big leap of being your own boss? <laughs> it's a little bit, little bit circumstances. Uh, you know, as I mentioned, I. I've wanted to make a move from 15 years overseas to come home. And the older you get, uh, the harder you don't just sort of walk into uh, a role in in an Australian bank. So that it wasn't guaranteed that I'd be able to continue my career anyway. But let's just say I had the choice. I probably still would have gone down this path anyway. And it probably comes back to something we were talking about at the start, that um, if you've always had something in you that made you feel like you wanted to to do your own thing and, and be a leader. You're always a little bit of a square pegging around working in an organisation with 100,000 um, people um, unless you happen to, to get all the way to, um, to Group CEO, which, um, you know, I was not. <laughs> so um, I, I think deep down there was uh, a part of me that, you know, while I was still young enough to answer this question as to whether I could... Um, you know, put my skills and experience towards something that really I, I was completely responsible for. So I'd say in the end, that was the real swing factor. People like me, you can fit into a, a big organisation like that and clearly I did, but you never feel quite at home. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so. what are you learning about yourself as a leader as you, as you continue the True Pillars journey? Probably the biggest thing is just um, in banks that are that big, The part of the bank you're working is normally quite highly specialised, so of course you've still got challenges managing different personalities, but it's within a, a sort of quite focused and bespoke environment. What I'm learning here is that people who've worked their whole careers in tech versus someone who comes from a bank or someone from a design or marketing background, all coming together in a really small team trying to push a business along. Is totally different, and the the mindsets, the expectations, the things that are valuable to these different groups and individuals is a lot more challenging from a leadership perspective as being in a um, a quite highly specialised department in a bank. Mm. Um, So it's really trying to come to terms with that and make the whole thing work (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. is uh, definitely the biggest challenge.
0: All right, so I wouldn't mind exploring some of the your more general views on leadership, what do you think the biggest leadership myth is that you've come across?
1: It's definitely the idea that you've got to be best at everything. I've really come to the the very firm conclusion that the good leadership's about understanding your people really well, understanding what they're good at and what they're best at. And um, when you know one of your team is the best at something empowering them to make sure that they can 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 do that there was one exercise i did on on one of the many courses the bank sent me on and not all of them were as good as i'm sure your training (laughs) courses are (laughs) julian but there was an exercise i did where um about seven of us were put in a room and we were given 20 steps to finish a project but they were out of order so the job of the group was to put the 20 steps in the correct order finish this project but we were put under a time press like you've got 10 minutes to get a single answer as a group um, and there was one person in there who came from a quite analytical part of the bank the risk um, area of the bank and he was trying to get the group to start off by putting things into subgroups first and then go to the order and I sort of cut him off and said we don't have time you've already wasted a minute talking about subgroups. And what happened was he ended up going off into the corner and doing his own little list and the rest of the group produced their list of 20. Got to the end and um, no surprises, you know, the group's list was totally out of order. We hardly got any of the steps right. But the facilitator had noticed that, that this individual who split mm-hmm. off had gone and done his own list. He was asked to produce his list and he pretty much nailed it. And the whole thing was a bit of a setup because uh, the whole exercise was really designed around what they knew that person to be because we'd all done quite a lot of testing coming in. So they knew that this individual was the best, but they also knew there was some dominant personalities who may or may not facilitate him to lead that. And I obviously didn't. And it was a massive kick in the guts for me because, you know, the, the moral of the story is a true leader would have recognized straight away that that. That individual was absolutely unequivocally un- the best equipped to get the right answer and my job then was really to get the rest of the group to support him and I didn't do it. And that was when the, pe- the penny really dropped that you know, the way I went about that was totally wrong. And you know, sometimes you've just got to facilitate people even if they struggle to get their voice heard. If you know they're good, you get their voice heard.
0: Yeah. That's a pretty powerful yeah. <laughs>
1: learning that um, a lot yeah. of leaders could learn from. Yeah, and it's one that, at the time, it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, I, I felt terrible. The whole thing was video that was embarrassing. And, you know, this happened nearly 15 years ago, and I still feel it like it was yesterday. <laughs> <laughs>
0: and, yeah, the uh, listeners yeah. can't see, but you, <laughs> you, you can <laughs> see. I'm <laughs> it again.
1: Yeah, so uh, that's, that's a big one for me. But, um, you know, your job's to facilitate and empower okay. the people in your team who are best at things. And
0: how do you describe yourself as a leader?
1: Yeah, it's a, a tough one to answer because uh, I always get a bit cheapish with stuff like this. But I think I'm someone who tries to who tries to keep a vision. So there's, a, there's always something that's a few steps out in front of wherever you are today uh, that you're trying to get to. Um, so I don't want to say that I am a visionary, but I'm somebody who... Um, tries to stay true to you know, a goal that is always some, somewhere off in the distance. And really the whole theme behind Tree Pillars that um, I come back to all the time is a belief that I have that um, you can make money in business and do the right thing at the same time. And on the back of um, the Royal Commission we've just had into to banking and finance, um, there's been plenty of examples there of... Um, People of uh, you know, efforts to make money, um, doing totally the wrong thing. And I think our whole industry, um, banking finance, um, has been tarred by this everywhere, all, not just in Australia but all around the world. There's a huge trust issue with our sector, and um, it's something that I really want to hang on to and, and keep as that vision mm. uh, that, that guides you on all the little decisions you have to make along the way. So.
0: I'm always curious about any methodologies, models, or frameworks that leaders use uh, either in their role. Are there any that come to mind for you?
1: Yeah, so I did have to do a little bit of homework on this. Um, I'm, I must say I'm, um, I'm not an avid reader of, um, of this stuff, but again, it was something that did come out of a, one of the good courses I did. And I had to look up the name of it, but it's uh, called the Merrill Wilson work style. Okay. Um, and it's a simple thing that breaks down, um, you know, whether a person fits into four sort of style types. And there's the driver who's very task-orientated and, and wants to get what they want at, at all costs. There's the expressive person who's got quite a big ego, always wears their heart on the sleeve and it's not backward and coming forward. There's the amiable person who just wants to fit in and keep everyone happy, a consensus builder, if you will. Um, And there's the analytical person who always wants to drill into the detail and won't make a decision without it. And the context of when I came across this, it was um, in that first leadership role um, when I first started to be a client director. And I was talking about how I worked hard on trying to build that. Personal rapport with, with clients as the differentiator instead of focusing on products and services. And the, the real moral of that story was to try and not everyone feel, falls neatly into any one of those four. Most people are a combination of um, more than one. But it was about trying to sort of understand the personality that your client is mm. and um, you matching that off. So it's not their job to fit in. To who you are. It's your job to, to understand a little bit about their personality style and, and adapt. And um and it is quite uh, quite powerful in the context I was working with back then because if you're going into a meeting with a, a CEO or a CFO of a, a huge public listed company and they're leaning forward on their table and glancing at their watch and why you do need to actually respond to that and get on with it if you want to get an outcome yeah. in that meeting and if you can see that the CFO that you're talking to is feeling a bit rushed into a decision because you haven't given them um, the detail to support it um, you need to just wind back a bit and give them that information um, and if you keep trying to push people into um, decisions that they're not clearly not comfortable with at a, at a personal level um you won't get very far and i think that sort of translates as well when you you're trying to lead a a team that you do need as a leader to adapt a little bit to each of the people that reports to you or are in the broader team and uh, there really isn't any point um (laughs) trying to push people into being who they're not and uh, i think a good leader takes it on themselves to to think about that a bit and, and adapt rather than sort of expecting everyone to fall to, uh, you know, around them, I guess. Um, so yeah, Merrill Wilson, that's... Uh, okay, I'll have to go and research yeah. that one. <laughs> what What's
0: your biggest leadership challenge right now?
1: It's definitely the this sort of task of trying to try transition myself and the whole group from a mindset of... Building something, you know, we spend so much time just trying to get the doors open and make sure everything works that I think we've found it hard uh, at times to um, shape that mentality of being a, a project, a project team that builds things to a team that is actually now got to grow a business and, and you know emerge out of this um, you know with with a viable long term business that can support itself. And um, I know that sounds really obvious, but it's not an easy transition, and it, it sometimes uh, you see a lot of startups. you know, they often have some quite key changes in leadership when they're going through this stage, because um, it is a totally different um, task mm-hmm. <laughs> to, to scale a business once it's built. Um, so that, without a doubt, is, um, you know, the greatest challenge uh, for me. I, I think, I, you know, I've shown that um, I can get the thing off the ground, uh, but, now the, the next frontier is... Uh, to build something viable that, that really does stand on its own, two feet.
0: And is that the way you're going to measure your success as a leader? That you've been able to take it from that project into that that, that ongoing sustainable business?
1: Well, I look at, that's a very, um, it's a personal goal for me, but um, I know that I can't do it by myself. Um, this is the very first lesson I learned in, in leadership. Um, it'll only happen because I, I put the right people into the right roles. I helped them deliver their best. And collectively, we made the right decisions about where to spend our time and money. So I think the you know, the measure of success without a doubt, that's what it is. But I don't go to sleep every night thinking about the numbers. I go to sleep thinking about whether we're spending time on the right things and you know, have I supported this team member or that team member in making sure they can deliver their component part.
0: One of the things which I've noticed in my time of, of training a lot of leaders is that a lot of them don't actually see networking as part of their role. What do what you views on networking? If you do network how do you go about it?
1: It's probably something you can relate to and I heard someone else talking about it the other day. When you are the, the founder or the CEO of a a relatively small, smaller business. The word I use is loneliness. Yep. And how I describe it is that you spend a lot of time trying to put support around your people, but quite really, you've got nowhere to go yourself. <laughs> There's no one that you report to. And if you don't invest a bit of time in networking and having some people that you can trust that have got something to offer. That loneliness can be quite overwhelming there's a lot of pressure Um people are at risk a lot to, to mm. do this and uh, you have to manage that you've got to have places you can go and people you can speak to when you are struggling whether it's to make a particular decision or maybe you've made a couple of mistakes and your confidence has been a bit rocked by that um, so i do think networking is very important but i think everyone's way of doing it is a bit different mm. so um you know for me one thing I've had to come to understand is that I am fundamentally an introverted person. I've taught myself if I need to stand up and present something, I can cope now, but it isn't what I enjoy doing. So networking for me isn't about going to conferences and um, you know meet meets. Uh, I do like warm introductions. So I do tend to listen quite intently when people talk about who they know mm-hmm. um, and if they sort of mention someone that i can sort of see straight away that maybe has something to offer who can help me i'll ask for an introduction and uh and i'll i'll tend to try and get a a meeting i much prefer to be sat at a table uh, meeting one-on-one or in a small group than you know yeah so i think you know again it comes back to that always being on the ball listening and don't don't be um scared to ask for an intro if you think there's someone that someone else might know um, that might have something to offer. And uh, that, that tends to be the way I go about it. Okay.
0: What about mentoring? Something I'm particularly passionate about. Do you have a mentor? Are you a mentor?
1: Yeah, I mean, definitely um, definitely over the years, whether officially or unofficially, I've ended up mentoring quite a lot of, lot of people. And um, I do believe in it. But I have very firm views of the job of a mentor is not to give direct and specific advice. So, mm. you know, I try really hard to... If someone is coming to you for advice, try and get them to their own answer. And I think that can be really challenging sometimes when you're, you're sitting there thinking, just go and do it X, Y, Z. But I don't, I don't think people get a lot out of that. So I think good mentors help people sort of build their own confidence in, in their decision-making. Mm. Um, Similarly, yes, I do have quite a few mentors, actually, people I call mentors. It's not always um, formal, sort of regimented We meet once a month, but there's certain people I make a point of catching up with and um, who I will speak to about certain dilemmas I'm facing. But the thing I always say about, and I say to the people that I mentor as well, that um, you'll get a lot of advice coming your way whether you ask for it or not. And when you're being mentored, The biggest challenge actually knowing which advice to listen to and which not to because you can't can't act on every single bit of advice you get. So I think that's a bit of a skill in itself to, um, if you are the mentor, you know, be mentored to understand that process and uh, which advice is the right one to listen to.
0: So what goals have you got for the coming year for True Pillars?
1: Yeah, it's all about building a a sustainable long term business for us. So, um, you know, I I don't hide from the fact we've been fortunate to get to raise capital. So, we've got nearly 30 shareholders now. All of those people invested understanding that we were going to lose money for a period of time. But the objective is to, to become profitable and something that can stand the test of time through cycles. So, we're into our third year now, and I think this is quite a big year of transition uh, to show to either be profitable by the end of, the, of this year or be showing that we're well on the way, and um, we are a business that can scale in that way. So that's what it's all about this year—probably just growing up. I think, as yeah. yeah, it's
0: really interesting how you almost have to go backwards before you can go forwards in some cases, isn't
1: it? Yeah, and it, and it's I think with startups as well, you can all, you can to some degree you can set the bar wherever you want it to be and um had we not raised the investment there was a pathway where we could have set the bar lower and settled for being a a profitable but much smaller business what we've managed to get the shareholders to buy into is let's set the bar up pretty high which means you know there's going to be a period where we take losses on but it's because we're aiming high and we're trying to grow something of scale and i think they're tough but interesting choices that you as the leader and all the people behind you uh, mate because I can't make decisions by myself anymore, yeah. I don't own 100% of this business but that process is um, it, it's equally scary but equally exhilarating at, at the same time mm. and uh, right now the bar's still pretty high we still <laughs> want to, uh, to crack on and, and achieve what we set out to.
0: And what challenges do you think your industry sector is going to face because I'm a, I'm a big believer that change is happening really quickly. And a lot of people I speak to aren't necessarily aware of how quickly change is coming. So what what does it mean for, you said before you describe yourselves as FinTech? Yeah. So what's going to hit the FinTech industry?
1: Oh, look, in in our space, um, our part of FinTech is is lending money. And I'd say the biggest challenge is that the behaviour we're seeing from the lenders in Australia, I'd describe as very immature at the moment. There's not a lot of regulation in business lending, unfortunately, so um, a lot of business owners are um, you know, being told things by their lenders that are totally untrue, and so I'm talking about non-banks here, um, you know, fintechs are, are non-banks, just things like misleading about what the true cost of a loan really is, what, what the interest rate is, along with a new, not so new, but something that's getting worse called loan stacking, where Borrowers end up, even small businesses with loans from three or four different players who are lending to them as if they're the only lender and almost willfully ignoring the fact that there are one, two, three other loans there. And um, if, you, if you sort of factored in the other loans that were there, you'd realise this business was going to struggle to make payments. But if you ignore all that, you think, well, you know, the loan I've done looks good. And then um, the types of things that... I wouldn't say banks would never do because banks have got their own conduct issues, but these are just really basic fundamentals of lending that I'd say banks moved on from 30 years ago doing things like this, Mm. Uh, but it's quite prevalent in our industry and um, it really needs to move on from being very immature, short-term focused and people actually understand that when you're dealing in risk-based products, you just can't do stuff like that and you can't pursue volume at all costs. You just won't stand the test of time, and it's a challenge for the industry because if too many behave like that, it hurts everybody else, no matter whether you're trying to do the right thing or not.
0: Mm. Are there any leaders that you either inspire you or that you look up to?
1: Yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, the one that's really yeah. jumped out at me the last few years is actually Rosie Rosie Batty. Yeah, uh, she's a lady who whose only son was. Brutally murdered by her um, ex husband and son's father. And after that happened, she went on to sort of really try and lead the charge about talking about domestic violence and especially men towards women. And oh, I happen to think it's the greatest challenge facing this country. It's a real epidemic. Sometimes I feel like the politicians don't really want to take it on because it's because such a big problem. There's a lot of these sort of distractions. With, um, Raising issues like African gangs mm-hmm. and so on that are nothing compared to, to this problem, and um, you know when you when you have something that that dire and that devastating happen to you, and you um, your response to that is to put yourself in the public domain and and try and make a change that can't help you anymore, uh, but it might help others. I think that's ultimately the issue, mm-hmm. and um, you know that that's. Um, she ended up being Australian of the Year, and, yeah, I don't know, when I think about it, I don't, I don't even know how you find it in yourself to do that. So, you know, that's something that I've thought about a lot. Yeah, so I sort of, I, I suppose you you might have been expecting a business leader, but, mm. um, you know, when I thought about what it really means, I just think what she did was mm. extraordinary. Well,
0: I, I think it's 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 really true what you said in, in respect of, what she's doing can't actually help her. Mm. I mean, that that really, that's the true sense of leadership, isn't it? When you're there to serve and you're there to, you know, look after the Mm. other people and contribute, which, again, it's a pretty powerful thing to do and I think not many people would be able to do that.
1: No, I mean, I I don't know if I could could, Mm. in that Mm. circumstance, to be honest. I, I just think she's an incredibly brave person and... Uh, At so many levels, you know, that that, that was actually our only child. We just didn't have anybody else to to lean on. Amazing. And
0: so, if people want to find out more about you and True Pillars, where should they
1: go? What should they look for? uh, Definitely our website, uh, www.truepillars.com. Obviously, everything about business is there. I haven't done it for a while, but I've written a few blogs, and one of them does talk a bit about my background and what led me to uh, found True pillars so um, that's definitely the place to go.
0: Okay, and any last words on leadership?
1: Uh, yeah, this is, this is one that probably stemmed again from all those courses I did at the bank, and one thing I got really tired of was uh, I'd spend a lot of time trying to identify strengths and weaknesses in all the participants of the course, and so often um, all the focus was on working on your weaknesses. So if I had one thing to say is, look, it's good to be aware of weaknesses. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and it's actually quite quite a humble thing to do. Mm. But don't obsess with them, you know. Get in touch with what your, your strengths are. Build on those. Just work with what you're good at and just get better at that. And mm. just keep the weaknesses, you know, Be conscious of them, but don't obsess with them because uh, you're better off working with who you are and... and what you are um, and building on that than trying to turn yourself into something that you're not.
0: Yeah, Yeah. couldn't agree more. (laughs) Well, on that note, thank you so much, John, for being part of the podcast. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Synergine Leadership Podcast. I trust you found it interesting. A couple of things. If you could go online and leave a review of the podcast, that would be great. Really help us in uh, spreading awareness of the podcast. Happy for you to connect with me on LinkedIn. I'm pretty easy to find. And if you want to shoot me through an email, julian at synerginegroup.com.au. See you next time.